What a great day of worship this morning, amen? Amen. Well, take your Bibles today and turn with me to Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4, as we continue our study through the book of Philippians, something's happened you thought may never happened. We have made it to chapter 4. And here we are this morning at Philippians chapter 4, looking at verses 1 through 3. Philippians 4, verses 1 through 3. One of my favorite promises in all of the New Testament is probably one of the most familiar verses in the New Testament, and that is found in Matthew 16, 18, when Jesus says to Peter, Peter, on this rock I will build my church, and you know the rest, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. On this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. That is a promise from God that the gates of hell will never prevail against the church. The gates of hell, symbolic of the power and the authority of the demonic forces who will not prevail. I was thinking about that promise recently and I thought about something I'd never really thought about before. I mean, I've always loved that promise. I've preached on it many, many times, but it never had quite hit me that the presence of a promise always points to the possibility of a problem. The presence of a promise always points to the possibility of a problem. I mean, if the Lord promises, I will never leave you or forsake you, it's because the Lord knows there will be times in which you think he has left you and forsaken you. If he says, I will love you with an everlasting love, then it's because he knows that there will be times in which we question his love for us. We need the promises because God knows the problem we're going to encounter. Now, if that's true with Matthew 16, 18, what it means is this. Yes, it is true that God has promised that the gates of hell will never prevail against us. At the same time, it also means that they're going to try. That the gates of hell are going to do everything they can to prevail against us. That all of hell is working against your sanctification. All of hell is working against blinding the eyes of the unbelievers so they cannot see the glory of Jesus Christ. All of hell is working against your marriage and your family. I heard a friend say this week, he said, I'm just reminded this week how much Satan hates my marriage. You know that's true, right? That marriage exists as a picture of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That the role the wife plays, the role the husband plays matters because it's painting a picture of the gospel. And so it is if you have a marriage that seeks to exalt Jesus Christ, the devil hates it and wants to do anything he can to destroy it. There is an all-out demonic attack on your marriage. You know that Satan hates your children, right? The enemy wants to do anything he can in all kinds of ways that he can, knowing you well to do anything he can to get you to do anything but that which matters most. I just think in the midst of our comfortable and casual and cultural Christianity, it's important for us to be reminded that the church of Jesus Christ is always under attack. And by the church of Jesus Christ, I I don't mean some vague idea of a gathering of believers in a building. I mean you as a part of the church of Jesus Christ. That everything in all of hell is working against you to distract you from doing what matters the most. 
And you see that in a thousand different ways. You see it in small ways. You see it in big ways. You see it in the small distractions. You see it in the major issues. I mean, this morning I was walking around the hallways greeting people and my phone started ringing and it rang once and then another time and I thought well I need to look at it and my wife was calling and she knows what I do on Sunday mornings and so she doesn't normally call so I knew it was important and uh, I answered the call and she says there is a two-year-old child in our car laying on the floorboard refusing to get out I was fairly confident from the call it was my child and so I left the lobby, and, went, and there he was, flailing on the floor. We were trying to find his shoes. I think that's how the battle started, the battle of shoes. And he had thrown the shoes all kinds of different places. So there I am, trying to do everything I can, looking under seats. And, you know, there's Cheerios and stuff under there. And, and trying to find uh, shoes, and uh, finally we get him in. He s still doesn't have his shoes on at 11.05, but that's okay. Uh, we won the primary battle. But it's just a reminder, and you know this, that the enemy in small ways and big ways wants to do anything he can to keep you from being where God wants you to be and doing what God wants you to do. Church of Jesus Christ is always under attack. This is not unusual. This is just the normal part of life. And he has one goal in your church and one goal in, in your life and one goal in the church. He simply wants you to get so distracted and so busy that you will do a thousand other things except leading other people to trust and follow Jesus Christ. It's exactly what my dad said last week. It is possible for us to be getting A's in everything that doesn't matter and failing in the mission that God has given us. If the enemy can just work in your life enough to get you so self-consumed and so inward focused and so frustrated and distracted and irritated, whatever it might be, if he can do just enough to keep you from opening your mouth and sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ, then he has won a battle. You see, if you're a believer, he cannot win the battle for your soul any longer. You have been purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ. And Jesus says in John 10, I know my sheep and they know me and I don't lose one of them. You are safe in the arms of God. But he can continue to work in your life to keep you, not from being a believer, but to keep you from being an effective and fruitful and useful believer. Now, This is really the heart of the Apostle Paul as he's writing this book. He loves this church deeply. We know his love for the church. He talks about it all through chapter 1. He talks about it here at the beginning of chapter 4. He deeply loves this church. I mean, just look at verse 1 in Philippians 4. It says, Therefore, my brothers whom I love and long for, my joy, my crown, stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. I love you, my beloved. I long for you. You are my joy. You are my crown. This is a love letter, and it should feel like a love letter because it's written from someone who deeply loves these people. And I think it's precisely because of the depth of his love for them that he also writes with genuine, deep concern. He's concerned because, listen, these are very difficult times for the church in Philippi. Now, if you've been around for the last few months as we walk through Philippians, you should know that. At the end of chapter 1, the Apostle Paul says that you are going to encounter the same conflict I encountered when I was there. When Paul was there, he was beaten, publicly shamed, in prison, and thrown out of the city. And then at the end of chapter 1, he says, I know that you're enduring the exact same thing. So here's a group of believers trying to live for Christ who are being beaten, publicly shamed, in prison. Because of their faith. So there's all this external persecution and opposition. 
At the same time, there's false teachers in the church. He tells us in Philippians 3, watch out for the dogs and watch out for the evildoers. There are people in the church preaching false doctrine, trying to tear apart families and steal hearts and affections. Again, why would the enemy try to get just a little bit of secondary false doctrine in the church or primary false doctrine so that we would spend our time debating about when Jesus is coming back instead of telling people Jesus is coming back? It happens all the time. So in the church, there's this external persecution, there's these false teachers, and then we know in Philippians 3, 18 and 19, there's this pull of the world that all of us feel. There's these people out there whose God is their belly and they're constantly having an appetite for the things of the world and giving themselves to it. So in the Philippian church right now, there's external persecution, there's false doctrine, false teachers present in the church, and then there's simply the constant pull of the world. And every one of those things has the ability to distract the church from the mission. But listen to me. If you've been around church as long as I have, you'll know this. Even if the devil gave up and the false teachers shut up and the world let up, we are still a gathering of sinful people who have the ability to mess this whole thing up. Do you know that? Like, the devil's doing his own thing. The world is doing its thing. False teachers are doing that. Take all of them apart. We could still mess this up ourselves. Can anyone say amen to that? It's true. We are redeemed, purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ. Praise God. But we are still sinful people walking around in the flesh. And we are a gathering of broken people trying to advance the kingdom of God together. And simply by our own issues, we have the ability to keep the church from doing what the church is supposed to do. I wonder sometimes if the devil just goes, oh, no, they got it. No, they're, no they got it. I, like, I was going to come in and wage this all-out war, but I think they're good. Like, a matter of fact, if I come in and turn up the heat, they might wake up and get scared and start praying. But they're, no, I saw that last business meeting. They're good. Let's just, let's just let that one go. You see, this is exactly what's happening in Philippi. Think about this. Paul loves this church. He planted this church. No one has partnered with Paul more than the church in Philippi, we know from the middle of chapter 4. He loves them. But he gets a report that apart from all the external stuff that's going on, there is this conflict in the church. And everything that Paul is writing is coming out of this one heart that the people in Philippi would be together for the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the vision for the church even today that we might be a gathering of people who are joining hands, standing for the gospel, striving for the gospel, and suffering for the gospel. God has united us for a purpose, for the mission of Jesus Christ. And so Paul even says it again in verse 1. He says, I'm longing for you to stand firm in the Lord. Don't let the, the, the persecution move you. Don't let the world move you. Don't let the false teachers move you. Stand in confidence in who you are. But then, Paul does the most surprising thing. There's really no other place where Paul does anything like this. Now, there are some moments when Paul calls out people by name, but it's usually because they are false teachers. They've deserted the faith, but there's nothing else in Paul's letters quite like this. Paul's just kind of encouraging them in general and speaking into them, and then all of a sudden, look at what he does in verse 2. He says, I entreat Euodia, and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. 
Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Now, I know this is impossible to believe if you've ever grown up in church, but apparently there's two ladies not getting along. (laughs) This is shocking. Matter of fact, I'm glad this is here just so we know this happens because I've never seen it. So, okay, that's not surprising. We know that. What's surprising is that Paul calls them out by name. Can you imagine? I, I'm, so here's what I'm debating as a preacher. Is this a paradigm for preaching? Because I would, I would love this. Like just at the end of the sermon, during the time of application, just calling people out. I, I would love that. But Paul does that. And here's the thing you've got to understand. Listen. Listen to me, these are good, godly women. Because Paul does not treat them like he treats the false teachers. The false teachers, he says, watch out for the dogs and the evildoers. He does not do that here. As a matter of fact, look at what it says in verse 3. I ask you, true companion, help these women who have, listen to this, labored side by side with me in the gospel. Do you know that's the only other place in Philippians where you have the same wording as Philippians 1.27? And Philippians 1.27 is the key verse for the entire book, which is Paul saying this, I'm pleading with you that you would strive together side by side for the gospel. In other words, there was a time in which these two ladies were a model of everything Paul wants to see happen in the church. They were a model. They were working together with him side by side. But something has happened in their relationship, and you don't know what. Some godly, gracious women who've been faithful, God-fearing. They may be founding members of the church, but they're not getting along. And Paul's tone here is not condemning. No, it's pleading. I entreat Euodia. He says it again. I entreat Syntyche. The word entreat means that he's, he's pleading with them. He's begging them to get along. It's not heavy-handed. It, it's affirming, it's, it's loving but strong. You say, well, why is it that Paul would call out these two women by name? Well, a couple of reasons. He heard from Epaphroditus who came to visit Paul that they were having problems. But it's not just that, it's this. It's because Paul teaches us here by his confrontation that which is really the point of this entire text. Listen very carefully to me because it's what the Lord wants to say to us this morning is simply this. Paul knows that the church cannot make missional progress without relational unity. The church cannot make missional progress without relational unity. So Paul sees this for what it is. It is a demonic attack against the church to keep them from being faithful to the mission. The devil saw an opportunity. Through some disagreement or something that bothered one of these two ladies, he used that opportunity. He saw the open door. He went in there. He drove a wedge between these two ladies. And Paul addresses it, listen, aggressively because he sees it for what it is. It is something the enemy is doing in the church to drive them apart and keep the church stagnant. It is impossible for the church to make missional progress without relational unity. So he simply begs them to agree in the Lord. You know, the fact is, is that we're never going to always agree on everything. I mean, this is a fairly large group of people. We're never going to agree on 
the music or the loudness of the music or the programs or when we need to have services. When we do, there's just a ton of things. Even secondary doctrines. We will not all agree on when we think Jesus is going to return or God's role in salvation. There's just all kinds of things we will not fully agree on. That, that's fine. There's always going to be those things. But those disagreements must be dealt with when they hinder the relational unity that is necessary for the progress of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So Paul calls it out. And listen, God's calling it out this morning. And what the Lord does for us so graciously in Philippians 4 is he shows us the way in which we continue to pursue relational unity. Why? One purpose, missional progress. We have got to lead people to trust and follow Christ. If relational unity is necessary for that, we better fight hard for relational unity. I want to encourage you to write these down. I'm going to give you quickly this morning three ways in which we pursue relational unity as a church for the sake of the mission. The first one is this. We must pursue, and we must protect the unity that Christ has purchased. We must protect the unity that Christ has purchased. Now, both of those things are important, protecting and purchasing. You see, he says right here, Agree in the Lord. Get along. Have the same mind. And by the way, that idea, agree, really takes us back to chapter 1 and chapter 2. When Paul is saying, I want you to be of the same mind. I want you to have the same heart, the same soul. I want you to be united. It's not that you're agreeing on every single thing. It's that you're united in your understanding of why the church has been gathered together. Agree in the Lord. That in the Lord really could be translated, agree because of your union in Christ. You are in Christ, Yodia. Syntyche, you are in Christ. And because you're in Christ and you're in Christ, it is possible for you to be united together in a right relationship, not only with God, but with each other. Let me explain to you how this works. Ephesians chapter 2 is very helpful in this regard. Jesus Christ died and shed his blood. So that we might have a right relationship with God and a right relationship with each other. It is not simply our relationship with God that Jesus died for. Jesus died to bring us into right relationship. So if you choose by faith to acknowledge your sin, that you have been separated from a holy God because of your rebellion and disobedience, and you turn from your rebellion, you repent of it, and you choose by faith to trust Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, and you choose to live a life of following him, you are declared righteous. And you are brought back into a right relationship with God. And the only way you can be brought into a right relationship with God is by trusting Jesus Christ. But at the moment that happened, not only is this relationship restored, but at that moment you are brought into a new family of God. You've got new brothers, you've got new sisters, whether you like it or not. God is saying, I brought you into a family, and that family he calls the body of Christ. And listen to me, God in his perfect wisdom, who knows you better than you know yourself, who knows humanity better than anyone else could ever understand, knows that we cannot do this alone. We can't be sanctified without the sanctifying work of others in our life. We cannot advance the kingdom of Christ without the help of others. We are limited in our gifting. We are limited in our abilities. We are limited in our courage. So God has said, I'm not only going to save them, I'm going to give them a family. This gathering is a gift of God purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ. 
for you to not be an active, engaged member of a local church is to disregard a part of the reason Jesus Christ died because he died so that you could gather with the family to become more like Christ and advance his kingdom together. There's no no plan B. It's not like, well, I, I could join a church or I could do it some other way. God's design is the church. And he has gathered us together, purchased us, and purchased this unity we experience by his own blood. And then after Paul explains that in Ephesians 2, he then says in Ephesians 4 this, now protect the unity of the body. You can't buy true, genuine unity. You can't buy it. It's purchased by Jesus Christ. But you can protect it. The Apostle Paul is saying, listen, this unity that is so fragile and so important, which has been purchased by Jesus, do everything you can to protect it. One of our greatest ambitions in the church is to do anything we can to protect the unity of the body. One of the things we talk about as deacons all of the time, we have a great deacon body in this church, that one of the deacons' primary role is to protect the unity of the body. But it's not just a deacon role, it is the role of every single member. If Jesus shed his blood to purchase it, my God, we should protect it. Do everything we can. And think about how significant that was in this church. I won't retell the story from Acts 16, but you know this church was a gathering of wealthy Asians and poor Greeks and working class Romans. There was nothing in all of earth that would have brought this group together but the blood of Jesus Christ. And here they are gathered as an incredible testimony to the power of God that God has the ability to take people from different races, different colors, different social backgrounds, different economic backgrounds, and gather them together Because the gospel is powerful enough to do it. And when that starts to erode, it speaks negatively against the gospel. So we must protect the unity that has been purchased by Christ. That's the first one. The second one is this. We must pursue a culture of humility. Write this down. We must protect that which has been purchased and we must pursue a culture of humility. Every bit of this is rooted In chapter 2, where the very vision of humility and oneness that we get is that which Jesus displayed. He humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. He came not so that he might be served, so that he might serve. So we have this picture of the exalted Christ eternally existing, creating everything by his word and for his glory. Humbled himself, took on the form, not of a human just, but took the form of the lowest human. He took the form of a servant, and he came to serve us. And it is the humility of Christ, which is the means by which we continue to have unity. So, so look at what it says. I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. So he's pleading with them individually. There's the bigger picture we just talked about, that we've got to protect unity. But, but here is this pleading with these two women. To just to get along and to agree. Now, I have, I have no idea what the problem was. But I have been a pastor for many years and I have five kids. I have mediated a lot of arguments. And I guarantee you that at the root of this issue right here and the root of why it isn't resolved is simply pride. 
You know, I have to believe that as this letter was being read out loud, I mean, that's what happened. Epaphroditus brought the letter back, and uh, here it is being read to the congregation, and all of a sudden we uh, get to chapter 1 where we need to strive side by side for the faith of the gospel, and Syntyche's thinking, I hope Yodi is listening to this. You know, she needs it. And all of a sudden they get to chapter 2, and they're talking about the humility of Jesus, and Yodi is going, I hope Syntyche's uh, listening to this. Boy, I tell you, that arrogant woman, she, boy, if she needed anything, she needed to hear this. And then when it comes to no grumbling and complaining, they're both kind of clearing their throat, <clears throat> you know, putting elbows out like some of you may be doing when I preach. I mean, they were all thinking about each other, and then all of a sudden, while they were both thinking that it was the other person's problem, Paul calls both of them out. Because in Paul's mind, it doesn't matter who's the offended party. It just matters that it gets resolved. And the only way it's going to get resolved is if one of them humbles themselves and takes the first step toward resolution. Are any of you married? Does this resonate at all? Can I, can I see your hands? Someone has to make the first step toward, someone, it's usually me, has to stop and say, I'm the idiot. And it's not like false, everybody loves Raymond stuff. It's true, it's generally true that I'm the one that's messed up. You know, I, th I think all the time about that, uh, that song, uh, that old song from the 1930s by Cole Porter, You're So Easy to Love, So Easy to Idolize, All Others Above. You, you, anybody? Some of you. I think Sky danced at that at his senior prom. But um, <laughs> you, know, you, you know the song. You know the song, I'm, you know the song I'm talking about. You know, I tell Andrea all the time, she's, she's genuinely easy to love. She, she really is. She has, I don't think, ever said that back to me. I, <laughs> like, honestly, she's never... I, we're not that, none of us are that easy to love. Can we just be honest? Like this is complicated, it's hard, but could it be one of the primary reasons God has put us in this family is because the very nature of the conflict is what God is going to use to sanctify us. He's giving us an opportunity to humble ourselves. He's given us the opportunity to submit to the authority of Jesus Christ. And could it be that that conflict that you're experiencing, whether it be in the church or in your marriage or with your children, is God inviting you into process in which he wants you to be made more like him, but you will never enter in unless you first humble yourself and acknowledge that you're wrong and start to make things right. I guarantee you, there are relationships in this room right now that the only problem is simply your pride. You just won't humble yourself. You just won't listen. You just won't decide that whether you get served or not, you're going to serve. Whether you get loved or not, you're going to love. Whether you get acknowledged or not, you're going to do everything you can to love to serve, to display kindness. It is true in every relationship we have, and it is absolutely true in this family, the family of God at Prince Adam. We have to pursue this culture of humility. Let me give you the last one. We protect the unity that's been purchased. We pursue a culture of humility. And the last one is this. We must aggressively deal with relational conflict. We must aggressively deal with relational conflict. I would say the decline of most churches is a result of the failure to just deal with problems. Everybody knows they're there. 
just kind of don't deal with them. Can I just say that that cannot be the culture of this church. We have to deal with problems. I don't know where we got the idea that it's unloving to confront someone in their sin, that it's unloving to deal with a problem, that it's unloving to bring up an issue. It is absolutely necessary that if you go your entire life and you just decide where you're not going to deal with any issues, you're not going to bring up hurts or frustrations, then what you're actually doing is just burying it all. And I assure you, one day it will come out and you will explode. And it's ugly and messy and no one wants to see it. Some of you have been in families where that, you just never talked about anything, everything was always okay. There is, there is no way everything's always okay. And there's no way everything's always okay here or at any church. So what do you do? You see something, you bring it up, you deal with it, you confront it, you go right at it. And Paul teaches us this here. Look, look at verse 3. Yes, I ask you, true companion. Now, there, there's some debate about this right here. Because that word true companion is actually the word syzicus which is a name of someone, a frequently used name uh, during this time. And most believe that Paul was referring to one man in the church, a yoke fellow, a, a faithful co-worker. He says, Sisychus, I'm pleading with you, help these women. So he puts it on them first. But then he says, you have to help them together with Clement. Help them. They labor side by side with me in the gospel and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Someone has to help them. Someone has to be a mediator with them. So if they can't work it out themselves, you, you got to get in on this. So church, you got to get in. Now, there's a few lessons we learn from this. One of the lessons we learn is this. Sometimes you do need a mediator. I'm a big fan of counseling. Someone just asked me last week, Pastor, what do you, what do you think about Christian counseling? Someone who who has a profession counseling you from the word of God, I, I think we don't take advantage of it enough. So what, what, do you, what do you think about marriage counseling? Praise God. Don't wait until you're at the end. Just talk to someone. You know, at marriage counseling, I, I think about kind of uh, like a referee in a boxing match <laughs> where sometimes you just need a referee in the middle saying, whoa, whoa, that's blow the belt. Get the gloves on. Someone just to mediate, someone just to help you, to hear each other, to talk, to, to communicate. And so it is that even in the church, Sometimes we need someone to help us to work things out. But you know what it tells me even deeper than that? It tells me this. That if there's a conflict in the church, it's not just those people's problem. Listen, it's everybody's problem. It's everybody's problem. He did not write a private separate letter to these two women. He called them out publicly. Listen, because just like we learn about the story of Achan in the book of Joshua, your sin is not just your problem. Your sin is my problem and all of our problem. Because a little leaven leavens the whole lump. And so it is that every single disagreement in the church matters and must be dealt with. We cannot ignore that it exists. We must aggressively pursue it with the hope of reconciliation. You know, sometimes I think we as a church, in not just this church, just the church in general, we enjoy talking about a conflict much more than we enjoy resolving it. We just love to talk, you know, you know who's having a conflict. And we talk about it, but instead of talking about it, let's get in the middle of it and resolve it. Not because we love conflict, but we love the mission of God. Let me say this and, and I'll be done. I was just thinking this week how much time I've spent in my ministry. And Brother Bill, you, you know this better than anybody. How, how much time I've spent trying to, to get the church to be unified. It's, it's, like, it's the great aim of every pastor. And there's, there's multiple reasons for that. It's just because a unified church is a lot fun, more fun to pastor than a non-unified church. 
So we, we, we love unity, but here's what the Lord convicted me of this week. I, I, I've always been someone to aggressively deal with conflict. I go after things. I don't like to let things lie. And so I love that. But what I've realized this week is I spend so much of my time dealing with unity, and the motive is often just for the sake of unity. I just, I want peace. I, I, I don't want us to not get along. The truth is unity doesn't exist for the sake of unity. Unity exists so that we can do something. That we might be a united force, hand in hand. Listen, if you have conflict with somebody, you're not going to grab their hand and move forward to advance the kingdom of God with them. The truth is, our passion and our mission doesn't matter unless there's unity, and our unity doesn't matter unless there's mission. So the question is simply this, for the sake of Christ and for the sake of his church, for the fact that he shed his blood to give you that unity in every relationship, let me simply ask you this. Is there any unresolved conflict in your life that is hindering your life and your sanctification, that is hindering the life of your family, that is hindering the life of the church? Can I beg you, can I entreat you on behalf of Christ this morning to get along and agree in the Lord? And someone is going to have to take the first step. God opposes the proud, He gives grace to the humble. Could it be that all the grace you need to resolve that conflict is available if you will first humble yourself and take the initiative? So this morning, as we stand in just a moment and have a time of invitation, there's first of all a call to come to Christ. If you're not a part of the the family of God, just hold on just a moment. If you're not a part of of the family of God, there's a pleading this morning that I'm making to you to give your life to Jesus Christ. If you're a part of the family, but you know some unresolved conflict, maybe it's the person next to you, maybe it's someone on the other side of the room, would you go grab them, bring them, and you take the initiative? You take the initiative. Don't wait and just begin the process of getting that right. And even if that's not the case, would you just pray for God's grace to be upon our church, that we might be a church together for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes.